0: And currently, we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. All right, getting back to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 38 today. Genesis chapter 38 is where we're going to resume. We finished up Genesis chapter 37 last time. And every once in a while this happens, what (laughs) happened yesterday. We had our small group study yesterday, and after we were done, I looked down, and the recorder (laughs) never got turned on. And so now this is the next day. I'm actually doing this study again today, just for your benefit, making the recording today. But we're going to be resuming with Genesis chapter 38, like I said, having finished Genesis 37 last time. Now, if you'll remember from last time, what did we see? We saw the brothers chose to sell their young brother Joseph to some merchants who were on their way to Egypt. That was the main point of what was going on last week. And what we saw in that is basically the beginning of the Joseph narrative. All right, so in the book of Genesis, Joseph is going to be our key figure for the rest of the book, for the most part, except for this chapter. This chapter doesn't have Joseph in it. This chapter is primarily about Judah. So some of your commentators will sometimes say, hey, you know, should chapter 38 be here in this section? Why would you have a chapter stuck in the middle or near the beginning? of the Joseph section having basically nothing to do with Joseph having to do with Judah. And uh, some have proposed that the reason for that could have to do with the fact that we're looking at a contrast of, of characters here. We're looking at a contrast of Joseph being contrasted with Judah. Another reason that we would find chapter 38 here, or why it might be appropriate to leave it here is because the material that's going to be looked at in here is chronologically in the right place, all right? So this is information that's happening back at Joseph's home. Joseph is on his way to Egypt. This is stuff that's happening at Joseph's home, not immediately after, but somewhat after. We can't tell for sure. It doesn't give us any time frames, but it is suspected that this is material that takes place after the sale of Joseph to those merchants going to Egypt. So chapter 38, verse 1, It came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adullamite whose name was Hira or Hira. So the focus now is on Judah. And Judah has departed from his brothers. Why would Judah depart from his brothers? It seems like it would be safer for everybody to stay together or keep the clan close together. But here he's separating himself from his brothers. One of the factors that may have to do with the reason that Judah departed from his brothers may have to do with the fact that it was Judah's idea to sell Joseph to the merchants going down to Egypt. And you remember how that was received when Jacob found out that his son Joseph was no more? You remember the impression that was left with him was that his son, his beloved son of his beloved wife, had been killed by wild animals. Remember, they brought back that colorful robe, and it had been dipped in blood, and he assumed that Joseph was torn to shreds by some wild beast. And you remember that they tried to comfort him, but he was not responsive to their comforting. So as time goes by, and Dad's not recovering from the distress and the grief that he feels at the loss of his favorite son, perhaps the brothers began to turn on Judah. Judah. Perhaps the brothers began to say, you know, it was your idea. And Judah, wait a minute, we were all in this together. Yes, but look at dad. He's a mess because of what happened. And you're the one that came up with the idea. Maybe there was some animosity, some rivalry that was going on. Perhaps that was a factor in this opening of this new chapter. You get the distinct impression, though, that this family is slowly falling apart. I mean, if you look back at chapter 34, what did we see there? We saw Simeon and Levi, the second and third born they were instrumental in annihilating the Shechemites. And then you find in the very next chapter, the firstborn, Reuben, is laying with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And then in chapter 37, the brothers sell Joseph to these merchants going to Egypt. And so this chapter now having to do with Judah, the fourthborn, and perhaps writing the coattails of Judah's idea to sell Joseph in that last chapter. When you find here in verse 1, it came to pass at the time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adullamite. Adullam is a town in Canaan. All right, so he's in Canaan and he seems to be hanging out with a Canaanite friend, Hira or Hira. I'm going to go with Hira. So he's hanging out with an Adulamite whose name was Hira. character Hira he is only mentioned in this chapter and we don't get a whole lot of information on him but he shows up here and then we'll see other verses as the chapter goes on but it should be a red flag that he's hanging out with a Canaanite friend why should that be a red flag well what was the last thing that happened when we looked over in chapter 34 Remember Dinah she decided she wanted to go hang out with the Canaanites and you remember how that turned out Here, he'd prefer the company of a Canaanite friend to his own brothers. Should be a red flag. I'm going to say this. Be careful who you choose to hang out with. That's true in our day, just as true as it was back in Judah's day. Be careful who you hang out with. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33 says, Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Again, that's bad company corrupts good character. And that should be a warning to us. Be careful who you hang out with. Bad company corrupts good character. If you consider yourself a person of good character and you hang out with bad company, it's going to corrupt you. Seat of application that we filled out on our forms yesterday was bad company corrupts good character. You also find in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and he tells them, verse 14, "...do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness, and what accord has Christ with Belial, or what part has a believer with an unbeliever?" We see Judah here. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. We're seeing this person, this called out person, Judah, and he's hanging out with a red flag person. Verse 2, Genesis chapter 38, verse 2 says this, And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua, and he married her and went into her. All right, so we were in the town of Adullam, and Canaan, think of that as the county, all right? So Adullam, a small location within this larger location of Canaan. So Judah's there. He sees a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. Now, most of your translations will give an indication or be worded in such a way that Shua is the name of the dad, and we don't know the name of the daughter, all right? Some of your translations, especially if they're based on the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation several hundred years before the time of Christ, translating the Hebrew into Greek, you would find that the indication or the, it's worded in such a way that shua is the name of the woman but for the most part most of your translations are going to have shua as the name of the dad and this woman this daughter of the certain canaanite is unnamed this person that judah is interested in all right again red flag he's now looking at woo-hoo, hot baby he's looking at her and she is a canaanite second corinthians chapter 6 verse 14 says do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers didn't we just look at that that was the seed of application number two. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. You see how verse two ends there, though, right? He married her and went into her. What is went into her? We've talked about that before. It means they consummated the marriage, they had sex, all right? They're husband and wife now. But he's married a Canaanite woman. Have you ever seen, have we ever seen that this is an issue so far as we've been moving through the book of Genesis? Absolutely. You remember when Abraham decided it was time to find a bride, to find a wife for his son Isaac. What did he tell his servant? Do not let my son marry a woman from this area. Don't let him marry a Canaanite. And he sent his servant away from Canaan to find a wife for his son Isaac. And then what ended up happening later, the next generation, Isaac, ends up having Jacob and Esau. Esau marries Canaanite women. You remember, Mom, Mom is pulling her hair out going, these women are driving me nuts. You better not let Jacob marry a Canaanite woman like Esau did. That's going to be the death of me. And so you remember that she orchestrated for her husband, Isaac, to send Jacob away to find a wife outside of Canaan. Do not marry a Canaanite. So we have that going on with Abraham having to do with Isaac, Isaac having to do with Jacob, and now Jacob's son Judah decides he's going to go marry a Canaanite woman. Red flag again, right? Just like I was saying. Watch out. This is a red flag area. Genesis chapter 38, verse 3. So she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Heir. Air, so so that means that Judah, after he married a Canaanite woman, he erred. <laughs> That's a little joke that worked better yesterday because we had a crowd in here yesterday, but not today. Uh, there were other jokes that I ended up making along the, the lines there. To err as human. Or as the firstborn son, he's the heir, right? So we were making fun of that, and we had a good time with that. But it's a little different today with just me and a a recorder and you on the other end listening. But the name of his son is heir, spelled E-R, and his name means watchful or watcher to be awake. So he names his son watchful. And then verse 4, Genesis 38, verse 4, She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. That's vigorous or healthy, all right. Translated, vigorous or healthy. Onan is the second born, and then moving on to verse five, Genesis chapter thirty-eight, verse five, and she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. He was at Hezib when she bore him. Shelah means drawn out, as in drawn out from the womb. This is the third born. We'll find as the story unfolds, he seems to be significantly younger than his two older brothers, and then they ended up at Hezib. When Shelah was born, Hezib is probably three miles southwest of Adullam, according to the New King James Study Bible. So it looks like they they made a move sometime between the birth of the first two brothers and the third brother. Verse 6, Genesis chapter 38, verse 6 says this, Then Judah took a wife for heir, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now it's interesting that Judah picks for himself who he's going to marry, but for his son, he decides it's better that I pick. So he picks a wife for his son, heir, for his firstborn. Her name is Tamar. That means date palm. She's not the only Tamar that we have in the Bible. Tamar is also the name of one of the daughters of David. It's also the name of Absalom's daughter. And Kenneth Matthews says this about Tamar. Tamar's ethnicity is undisclosed, but commentators often assume a Canaanite lineage since the text does not indicate an Israelite connection. So you get that so far? What is he saying? He's saying it sounds like Tamar is probably from Canaan. However, he goes on to say this. Conversely, one could argue that the identification of Judah's wife as a Canaanitis means that the silence of the text for Tamar's ethnicity implies that she was Israelite. Is Tamar an Israelite? Is Tamar a Canaanitis? We're not sure. It doesn't tell us for sure. And then finally, Kenneth Matthews says this. If she were of Canaanite background, matters were turning from bad to worse, since another generation would have married outside the Abraham family. And he refers specifically to Ishmael marrying outside of the Abrahamic family. Esau marrying women of Canaan, and then Simeon, we're going to find out later, ends up marrying from outside the family, or ends up marrying a Canaanite. Verse 7, But Ere, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. So, God kills him. We don't know why, but it's interesting that the watchful one didn't seem to see this coming. But something about air was so wicked that the Lord decided to kill him. Victor P. Hamilton says, "...the text does not give even a hint of what that sin was, and the reason for the omission is that air's sin and its identification is not central to the movement of the story." But it must have been a grave sin. Not since the days of Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah has God taken the life of one who displeased him. And there it was groups who were annihilated. Heir is the first individual in scripture whom Yahweh kills. How would you like to have that claim to fame? You're the first person named in scripture that God, as an individual, that God kills. Uh, Yeah, not such a good thing. I remember many years ago being in high school having friends and the parents i remember observing that there were different parenting styles than i was used to and then later on as a youth pastor i remember dealing with parents a lot and the different parenting styles that cropped up in that setting and uh now i've got children of my own and they have friends who have parents who have different parenting styles why am i bringing this up because one of those different parenting styles, let's call it, let's just call it non political correctness, all right? This is the parent who sometimes would say things like, You take that smirk off your face or I'll slap it off, or I'll ground you so fast it'll make your head spin, or I will literally knock you into next week. That always caught my attention because they're obviously not using the word literally correctly. But anyway, or how about the ultimate threat? I brought you into this world. And I could take you right back out again. And I'm sure some of you have probably heard that. Maybe it sounded like it was from a parent that was just joking around, but being very firm in their way of joking. I brought you into this world and I can take you right back out again. To hear a parent say something like that, especially nowadays, that's just not something that you run across very often. But when it comes down to it, like I said, were these parents serious? Probably not. No, I would hope not, right? I mean... Come on, you can't say that and be serious. But God can. God can say that. God can say, I brought you into this world, and I can take you right back out again. And we see that happening here in the life of heir, right? Because heir's life was given to him by God, and yet God decides, you know what? This guy's so wicked, I'm going to take him right back out again, and God takes him out again. So God has that sovereignty where he can bring you into the world and he can take you right back out again he can do that sort of stuff i sometimes think that we make a mistake when we emphasize too much that oh i'm a friend of god or god is my friend we're buddies right and we lose sight of the fact that he is also supreme he is also sovereign he can do whatever he wants and he's got a holiness a standard of holiness that we will never attain without a holiness given to us by christ's life death burial and resurrection we stand completely exposed to him all of our motives all of our thoughts all of our actions nothing escapes his view and just being reminded of that goes a long way to help us to make better choices than we would otherwise if we just think of him as our buddy scripture supports this in lots of ways we see in job chapter 12 verse 10 that in God's hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. I mean, when you think about it, every breath is a gift from God. Job thirty-four fourteen and 15 says that if he should set his heart on it, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. God can do that kind of thing. Our lives are in his hands. Our very breath, every breath we take is a gift from him. Genesis chapter 6 verse 17. And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth. This is the flood story, right? God saying, I'm going to destroy the whole earth. Behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. James 4.14 reminds us, Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. What is all this doing? It's emphasizing that all we have, every single breath, is a gift from God and is evidence of His long-suffering patience and grace and mercy. Were it not for God's patience, grace, and mercy, that next breath, might be our last seed of application that we filled out yesterday. Every breath is a gift from God. A gift that he doesn't have to give. Genesis chapter 38, verse 8. And Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. So let's get the whole picture here. What do we have? We have Judah and his unnamed wife and they end up having three sons. The first one is heir. He's wicked. God kills him. So the second born son is Onan and Judah, dad, tells Onan, you need to go into your brother's wife, you need to have sex with your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother who's dead, right? So what we're seeing is a picture here of what ends up becoming what's called Leverite marriage. Deuteronomy chapter 25 verses 5 through 10 spells out what it becomes later on, several hundred years from this point right here. Lever is Latin for brother-in-law or husband's brother. So here the situation is Tamar, her brother-in-law is Onan. Judah is telling Onan, you need to have kids with Tamar. And basically what's going to happen is the firstborn son is going to be reckoned as the son for Tamar and heir, even though it's going to be Onan as the father. Are you following me? The reason for that was because with heir being killed by God, that was the height of disgrace and incompleteness for heir and Tamar for heir to die and there's no son. There's nobody to continue the family line or to carry on the family name. So Onan's job, Judah's saying, Onan's job, you need to have sex with Tamar, you need to have a baby with her and then raise that son, support that son and then that's going to become the replacement or the one that's going to carry on the family name for the one that God killed, for the older brother, heir, who God killed. This boy will grow to carry on the family name for heir and Tamar. When we talk about Leverite marriage, some of the places that you can find that also in the Bible, the situation with Ruth and Boaz, when you look at the book of Ruth, Ruth wants to marry Boaz. Boaz says, well, there's somebody else in line ahead of me. I need to talk to him first. And you have this unfolding of a Leverite marriage situation in that story. It doesn't look exactly like you would expect it from Deuteronomy chapter 25 verses 5 through 10, the passage I gave you earlier, but it is Leverite marriage nonetheless that's going on there. You also find it in the Gospels. There's one story that appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it's basically the Sadducees come to Jesus. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in a life after death or rising from the dead after you've died. And they come to trap him. They come to ask him a hard question And they think they've got a situation that he's not going to be able to answer. And so they lay this out and say, basically, there was a man, he had a wife, and he ended up dying, there were no children, but he had brothers, and so the next one in line marries her, he dies, no children, next one, same situation, on and on until all the line of brothers are exhausted. And then the Sadducees ask Jesus, so if there is a resurrection, they don't say if, but basically that's what they're implying. They say, when the resurrection happens, or at the resurrection, whose wife will she be because she was the wife of all of the brothers here on earth and so they're asking the question expecting he won't be able to answer that and they use this scenario they use this situation As a, see, you know, you can't have a resurrection because you can't answer this question or address this issue. And Jesus says, you guys are greatly mistaken in this. This isn't how it works. At that time, at the coming of the Son of Man, when we're in that eternal state, basically he says, we're going to be like the angels in heaven. There's not going to be marrying and giving in marriage, but we're going to be like the angels in heaven. Which kind of seems to create more questions than it actually answers in some respects, because then you want to know, wait, how is that going to work out? What I get out of that is that God is saying, single or married in this life, in the next life, everybody's going to be on the same plane. You might feel if you're single nowadays, oh, I'm not married, and so far I'm considered second rate or second class or something. Or some people would say to themselves, well, I'm single, therefore I'm superior to the ones that are married. As if there's some sort of hierarchy in God's economy as single or married. Paul says that I wish that all were as I am, and the inference that's gathered from that is that if a person has a gift to remain single, to serve God wholeheartedly, that's great. But if you don't have that gift, then get married, all right? So it's not one's greater than the other, but it's what God has called you to. If he's called you to be single, then you need to be single and not get married. If he's called you to be married, then don't try to be single, because it's not going to work out. All right? So when God comes back again, we're all gathered to be with Him. There isn't any more marrying and giving in marriage. It's that we're all married to the Lamb. You realize that the New Testament has three metaphors, basically, that come to mind right now, having to do with Christ in relationship to the church. So he's the body, building, and bride. The New Testament paints a picture of Christ being our spouse when we go to heaven. And if, if you're happily married, great. Praise God that you are. If you're happily married... Don't look forward to that day and say, Oh dear, I'm going to lose that happiness I have in marriage, as if God's not going to replace it with something better. He is. He's going to give Himself as a spouse. And as great as your spouse might be, that person isn't going to compare with the greatness of having Christ as our spouse. Okay? And for those of you that are single and maybe even been lonely, you've been wanting to be married you too can look forward to that day, right? So we're all going to be able to look forward to a day when we're going to be married to Christ. Whether we're married now or single now, it's going to be better then. All right. Going back to verse 8, and Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. Verse 9, but Onan, second born son, right? Second born of Judah, the younger brother of heir. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his. And it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife. Now mine says, I'm using New King James here, it says when he went into his brother's wife, but the ESV, the NLT, the HCSB, the NIV, and several other translations actually have that translated as whenever. Why do I emphasize that? Because this was not a one-time deal. This was continual. This was repeated. All right, so let me read it that way. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his, and it came to pass whenever he went into his brother's wife, whenever he had sex with his brother's wife, that he emitted on the ground lest he should give an heir to his brother (laughs) what that means he's practicing coitus interruptus all right he is having sex with tamar and then when it gets near the end he withdraws and he emits his semen onto the ground. And then the rest of the verse says, lest he should give an heir to his brother. All right. This passage, I remember this passage when I was in full swing in adolescence. My family lived close to our cousins and our aunts and uncles. And I remember my aunt, bless her heart, I'm glad she did. She brought all the cousins together and we ended up having a class. And the class was basically a biblical sexuality class for the group of us. And speaking of myself now, pretty new to this whole Christian thing, I don't know what it is, but all right, you're my cousins, I'll go anyway. And it wasn't like I had much choice anyway, because it's my aunt. And she says, everybody is going to be there. It's not like I could say I'm not going to be there. It was expected that we were all going to be there. And I remember this passage. Because as a teenage boy, what am I hearing? I am hearing this is the only place in the Bible that has to do with masturbation. And God kills the guy, right? And so as a a boy in full adolescence, I'm like, oh, dear, what is the Bible trying to teach me? Uh, It's not about masturbation. This passage is not about masturbation. In fact, Onan gives rise. This boy's name, the second boy's born's name is Onan, gives rise to the name of Onanism, which actually is sometimes used as a synonym for masturbation, but this passage is not about masturbation. God taking his life, it's not about masturbation. So why would Onan do such a thing? Why would Onan do this? Well, think about this for a second. Onan is being asked to have a child that would be reckoned as the son of his older brother and Tamar, his older brother's wife. As it stands right now God has killed heir E R heir E R E-R, was the heir H E I R until God killed him What does the heir what does the firstborn have to look forward to a larger portion of the estate When God killed heir E R when God killed the oldest brother the firstborn of Judah what ended up happening? Well, because there were no sons, there was nobody to pass it down to. There were no daughters, there was nobody to pass it down to. So who's next in line? It's Onan, the second born. He now stands to inherit the largest portion of the estate. Unless he has a son with Tamar. If he has a son with Tamar, that boy, who he is going to have to invest money into to raise is going to grow up to replace Onan for the big inheritance. So Onan's thinking, I don't want to raise somebody for my brother who's now dead that God killed. I don't want to raise a boy, go through the expense of raising him up, and he doesn't even get counted as mine, and he takes my inheritance. My brother's dead. I get the big inheritance. But if I raise up a boy, then the boy gets the bigger portion of the inheritance. I'll get less. So you look at it, and you can start to see Onan's motivation for not impregnating Tamar, right? But in Leverite marriage, there is an opportunity to say, no, you don't want to be a participant in that. Onan could have said, uh, no. Now maybe I'm assuming too much. Maybe that wasn't an option. Maybe Judah wouldn't have allowed him to say no. But it doesn't sound like he even objected. It doesn't sound like he tried to say no. In fact, what it looks like, it looks like he's trying to pretend like he's doing what he should be doing, that he's bearing that responsibility, that Leverite marriage duty that he has. It looks like he's trying to fulfill that role when he really isn't fulfilling it, right? So what are we seeing here? We are seeing here selfishness, because he wants the biggest part of the estate. And we're seeing selfishness, because he's willing to have sex with Tamar, but we're also seeing deceit. So we're seeing selfishness and deceit. You think God's gonna notice something like that? Does God see our selfishness and our deceit? Absolutely, he sees our selfishness and our deceit. What ends up happening? Verse 10, And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, And therefore he, God, killed him, Onan, also. So the vigorous one, Onan, is now not so vigorous, is he? God took his life. So we have the watchful one, didn't see it coming. We have the vigorous one, is not vigor anymore. God kills these two boys, the firstborn and the secondborn brothers. So when we're looking at it, why did God kill him? Selfishness and deceit. Do we have selfishness in our lives? Yeah, selfishness is one of those weeds that's always growing in our lives. It's one of those things where we need to be mindful of our garden and find that weed of selfishness and yank it out when we see it. But you know what? You yank out the weed of selfishness that's over in this area of your garden and it crops up in another area. Don't let that thing grow and take root and get strong and produce more seed. Pull it out. Get rid of selfishness in your life. Take care of it when it's small. Don't let it grow big. And deceit, it's the same thing. Deceit is one of those things that starts off tiny. It starts off small. But what ends up happening? If you don't address it, if you don't rip it out by the roots, it's going to grow bigger. It's going to crop up again. Little bits of deceit cropping up in this area of your life or that area of your life, in the dark corners of your life. Deceit, selfishness, God kills Onan. seed of application that we had yesterday, God abhors selfishness and deceit. Verse 11 then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. Well, that's nice, isn't it? Judah is saying basically to Tamar, You know what? Not all is lost. Yeah, you lost your husband, heir, my firstborn son. He's gone. Onan, it looked like he might have been able to rise up and fulfill that role of the levirate marriage in your situation, but that didn't work out either. So I do have a third son. His name is Shelah as you know, and uh, go be a widow in your father's house. Shelah's pretty young, so we got to let him grow up a little bit more before we have him fulfill the Leverite marriage role and responsibility in your life. Well, that was nice of Judah to say that. Uh, so Shelah means drawn out, and nothing happens fast. This is pretty drawn out. So there's another pun for you that worked better yesterday. And now Judah is advising Tamar to go back home, remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. However, that's not where verse 11 ends verse 11 continues on and says this for he said now this is judah talking to himself that he's saying to himself lest he also die like his brothers and tamar went and dwelt in her father's house what did we just get we just got a glimpse of what judah is thinking all right we just got a glimpse into the actual motivation for judah's message judah makes it sound like there's a light at the end of the tunnel for you tamar making it sound like it's going to be a temporary situation, that there's going to be a point in time when Sheila is going to be given to her. She's going to live as a widow, which was extremely difficult and was also somewhat disgraceful to be a widow, having borne no sons to heir and bearing no sons with Onan. And uh, now she's to move back home and be a widow. But you know what? Don't worry about it. That's not permanent. That's temporary because Shayla is going to come over. And then we find out Judah's thoughts are never to see that happen. Judah doesn't want to lose his third-born son. He thinks the problem is Tamar. He thinks if I give my third son to Tamar that something's going to happen. I don't know what it is. Something strange is going on with Tamar. And if I give my third-born son to Tamar, he's going to die too. And we're getting a glimpse into Judah's motivation, Judah's mind, Judah's way of thinking. He does not actually intend to give his third son, Shelah, to Tamar. Verse 12. Now, in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, again, the mystery woman, right? Judah's mystery wife. The daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died and Judah was comforted. What does that imply? It means there was a time of grieving, a time of mourning. That's understandable. We have a time of mourning for Judah's unnamed wife passing away. Interestingly, we don't see that in the death of his firstborn or secondborn son. There's no indication that dad had to be comforted, that Judah had to be comforted in the death of his firstborn or the death of his secondborn. You know, what's also interesting about Aaron er and Onan, you don't find any descendants that came from them. They're basically cut off by God. Now, in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died, and Judah was comforted, and he went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah. He and his friend Hira, there's Hira again, we met him. He's the Edulamite that we met in the opening verse of this passage. He and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. So Judah's wife, the mystery woman, we don't have the name for her. She dies. Judah has to be comforted because there was a time of grief. And then it's a very festive occasion, sheep shearing time. We've talked about this before. Remember Laban. Remember Laban had sheep shearing time and Laban went up to the sheep shearing that was going on. And that was the opportunity that Jacob took to say, okay, everybody, we're leaving right away. And it was during the sheep-shearing time that they did that. Why was that? Because sheep-shearing was something that could take up to a week. You remember in the Laban story, it wasn't for three days that even found out that everybody had left. It's a festive occasion. There's feasting. There's eating, drinking, partying. You even had a prostitution. And you're probably thinking, prostitution? What does that have to do with anything? Back then, they had strange ideas. Uh, one of the ideas was that it, it was the grain harvest. And if you had a ritual with having you know, engaging in ritualistic prostitution during the grain harvest, that maybe that would do something to secure a better harvest for next year. Uh, Probably not too much different in the sheep-sharing time. You have this ritualistic prostitution thing going on where you're hoping to secure the God's favor and secure for yourself. I don't know, more wool next year or more sheep to shear next time. So you'd have prostitutes that would hang out along the roads. And the money's flowing. I mean, that's payday. That's payday for the year. You're going at sheep shearing time. That's why you had money for eating and drinking and having sex. At, it sounds like downtown Las Vegas or something going on here. So that's where we're going to end up leaving you today, though, is that Judah's going to Timnath It's sheep shearing time, a festive occasion with lots of eating, drinking, and prostitution. And that's where we're going to leave off to be resumed or picked up here next time because some of that might come into play in the rest of this story when we get back together, all right? So the seeds of application today or yesterday were, number one, bad company corrupts good character. Or be careful who you hang out with. Number two, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. We've seen that before, and it bears repeating again. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers number three every breath is a gift from god and there's no guarantee he'll give you the next one enjoy the blessings that god has given you to include every breath all right appreciate every breath as being given to you by god and number four god abhors selfishness and deceit do not let selfishness do not let deceit take root in your life deal with those weeds pull them out of the garden of your spiritual life let's go ahead and pray Heavenly Father, we thank you for meeting us here today. We pray, God, that you would help us to make good choices. We pray that you would help us to be mindful that, yeah, you are our buddy, but you're also sovereign. You also have a standard, a high standard of holiness. We would never measure up to that standard, Lord, were it not for your son's appropriated righteousness on our behalf. And for that, we are grateful we thank you lord for the story this strange story that we're going through right now and (laughs) hoping us to see that it's not about masturbation but rather it's about selfishness it's about deceit it's about greed and other base things that we find cropping up in our lives seeds that take root and start to grow and become weeds we pray that you would by your spirit help us to find these weeds and to yank them out of our lives so that we could be fully devoted to you, Lord, and not choked by these competing thoughts and motivations in our lives. Be glorified, Lord, in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.